All right. So before we go any further, I think we need to pray, and then we can get into the text. Lord, I just thank you so much for this day. I just pray that you would just be with this time. Lord, I just pray that you would just open minds and open ears and open hearts. And if anything is said that is not um, according to your will, Lord, I just pray that it would be quickly forgotten. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this morning we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 7. We are going to be in some other passages as well. Um, so the last, a couple months ago, uh, in the youth on Wednesday nights, I spent about four weeks kind of walking through what the gospel is, what the gospel looks like, but specifically looking at who Jesus is. When Jesus came, the Messiah had expectations placed on him that Jesus was not actually here to fulfill. Jesus was not to be a political leader to free the people from Roman oppression. Jesus was not to be a military leader to free the people from Roman oppression. Rather, he was here to bring his own kingdom, not work inside of a kingdom that was established by mankind. And so today we're going to look at, first off, what the gospel is according to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And then we're going to very quickly and very, very briefly trace through the history of Israel to see how Jesus' ultimate purpose was not just only exclusively to get us out of hell, but rather to bring about a much bigger, broader thing. Make sense? That's where we're headed. So I hope you spend time this week looking at these passages and looking at other passages in your text today if you have questions. And if you have questions about this, come. Talk to me after. I'd love to have a conversation with you. So we are going to look today right now about the gospel, and then we're going to trace the gospel message through the Old Testament and into the work of Jesus. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 7. Paul says this, Now I would remind you, brothers of the gospel, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So in this text, we see four pieces, four main points to what the gospel message is. First and foremost is that Christ died for sins. Christ died for sin. Second, Christ was buried, Christ was raised, and then Christ appeared to other people. So first, he died for our sins. Why did he have to die for our sins? Well, we're not going to get into the Old Testament fully just yet, but let's look at some things in the Old Testament. So first, in Genesis chapter 1, God created a garden. Genesis 2 and 3, mankind fell. Humankind fell, and they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. That only covers nakedness and shame for a temporary period. What did God do? When God removed them from the garden, he covered them in animal skins. He didn't get those animal skins magically. Something had to die to cover that nakedness, to cover that shame. Okay, and then we see in um, Egypt, when the people were in Egypt, uh, for the last plague that God put on Egypt, he told the Israelites to put blood on their doorposts. Something had to die 
to protect the people from the angel of death. And then we see in the Mosaic and Levitical laws, covenants, we see the necessity for sacrifices. We see the necessity for a yearly sacrifice for all the people, but then we also see sacrifices and offerings of grain or animals uh, to cover personal individual sins. Death is always associated, has always associated with cleansing of sin. And we see the work of Jesus being sufficient enough, substantial enough to cleanse all people of their sin. The next piece is that he was buried and raised. Christ was buried. Christ was raised. So he was buried. Christ was dead, dead. There was no just, well, maybe he was asleep. Maybe he was in shock. The people spent enough time with his body to know that he was dead. But then we also see that he arose. This means that he conquered death and he conquered sin. And we have access to that peace. And lastly, he appeared. Where is proof of Christ coming back? He didn't just magically disappear from the tomb and then no one saw from him again. But rather he appeared to the disciples. He appeared to individual people. And then he appeared to great groups. This is something that is very cool. This is the gospel message. If, if this is not being presented, if this is not being preached, then we are missing the gospel message. But a piece in 1 Corinthians 15 that I wanted to highlight is that after all of these four things, it says, according to the scriptures. So when we read this today, we think, okay, according to the scriptures. But in Paul's time, when he was writing to the church, he was writing regarding the Old Testament. So there has always been a plan for redemption. There has always been a plan for a kingdom, not just a political peace, but rather for God to be in complete control of the world. So we see in Genesis 1, a a garden being planted, people being able to thrive in that garden. And we see in Revelation, a return to that garden. That is God's intended purpose to construct a kingdom. And we get to be a part of that. And because of the death of Christ, because of the great commission, we are not agents of creating the kingdom, but we get to be agents of expanding that kingdom. So we're going to look real quick through a history of the Israel, of the, of the early, of the Israelites, of, of the Old Testament. So first we see humanity created in the image of God. They then fall, and then God has punishments for them, but also God preserves their life. We then see Abram being called out to go to a land and to create a people. God works miraculously in that situation. We see then Jacob and Joseph. Joseph is, brings the people of Israel into Egypt. In that time in Egypt, they grow, they multiply. They become such a large number that the Egyptians feel that they need to suppress them or they're going to overthrow the Egyptian government. And so they're put into slavery and oppression. And what does God do? God calls one of his own people that also had Egyptian ties to come and free the people from Egypt, that in the person of Moses. Moses then leads the people out of Egypt, leads them in the, in the wilderness for 40 years, and then Joshua is called to replace that. And so we now see Joshua taking the people of Abraham, God's own people, into a land. So people and land, okay? And then after that period, we see the period of the judges, utter depravity. God blesses the people, and then they turn from God, 
And then he raises up a leader, a judge. The people focus on God for a period. Things are good. And then they cycle back into a period of, of rebellion against God. And so what do they do? What do the people want? The people cry out to Samuel for a king. I want you to read this passage with me. So please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 22. Uh, 2.31 in mind, but First uh, Samuel uh, 8, verses 19 through 22. I'm hearing pages start to slow down. So First Samuel 8, 19 through 22. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king, king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. What did the people want? They wanted a king to judge, and they wanted a king to go out before them in battle. If you think back in the wilderness wanderings, if you think back to the period of Joshua, who was it that went before the people to fight for the people? God. It wasn't a person. It was God. And these people decided, no, no, no. We need a political leader that, needs, that comes in and does this work because we don't want to sit under God. And what does God do? Does he get mad? Does he say, no, thank you? He lets them experience that. And so he gives them the King Saul, which turned out to be kind of a disaster. He gives him King David, which was a disaster in a sense, but David was a man after God's own heart. And so even as good as it got, it still wasn't what God had intended, what God wanted. Okay. And so we then see in, in, the prophets, we see that there is going to be a Messiah that is going to be in the line of David, in the vein of David. And this person is Jesus, but he has not come just to set up a political kingdom. And so after we see the kings, there's a long line of kings, some of them very, very good, and some of them very, very bad. Um, we then experience for Israel a time of captivity. And this is where the people of Israel are when the Messiah shows up. They are both experiencing captivity from Babylon, but then, and then it transitions into experiencing captivity or just Roman rule and authority. And so Jesus comes in the middle of this. And what does he say? So Mark 1, verses 14 and 15, he says that, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Acts 1.3, he says the same thing. And this is after his death and resurrection. If he wanted to change his message, this is the time to change it. After he has died and now after he has publicly risen, if he wants to change his message, he can, but he doesn't. The kingdom is the, is the point of what God is after. 
And because of Christ's death and resurrection, we as individuals get to be beneficiaries of that. And so God is creating a land and a people even today under the new covenant through the work of Jesus Christ. So to tie all of this kind of together, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 12. Verse 11 kind of just talks about the idea of the people that are not of God becoming part, a piece of of who God is. And so starting in verse 12, remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we have both access and one spirit to the Father. So then you who are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So what this passage is talking about is kind of a a summation of what I have already kind of shared. Because of the work of Christ, it is a continuation of what God was already doing in the the Old Testament. Jesus' death and resurrection is not something new that we can just jump onto and be like, okay, now this is the new train and this is where I need to be going. But rather, this is... a a continuation of the work that God has always been doing of creating a people and creating a land for those people. And so we get to be a part of the work that God has already done in the Old Testament. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's so easy when, when we read scripture, when we come to scripture, we often put ourselves as the main characters of the text. When we read history or when we read a biography, we may see how the history affected that individual or how that history may have affected the larger world. But very rarely, we shouldn't be putting our own selves as the main character in a biography because we're reading about someone else. And so when we read the text of scripture, we are not reading about ourselves as the main character. We're reading about Jesus Christ and the work that he has already done as the main character. And so it's a much larger picture than just me getting out of hell, but rather God coming and bringing restoration both spiritually and physically to this world. So often in our, in our current modern age, we see an emphasis on social justice, but then we also see a reaction to that emphasis on social justice by saying, no, no justice, whatever. We're just going to sit and read our Bible, stay inside of our church. That is not who Jesus was. Jesus was not a liberation theologian. He was not here just to bring justice to the socially unequal. 
but he also wasn't not about that. Jesus picked up the scroll in Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah in Luke 4, and specifically is speaking about things that he is here to do. I want to encourage you to read that in Luke 4. Um, and so that is, a, we, we see that Jesus is here not to just change individuals, but also change the system. But he encourages us as believers, as kingdom people, to be a part of that change. So I am going to begin to wrap up at this point. And some of you may be so far away from God, you have not ever interacted with Jesus. And I want to encourage you, look at what Christ has done. The gospel message is that he died for your sins, he has cleansed you of your sins, and he has provided you the power to overcome those sins, okay? But then also, sometimes we get just calloused or we get so comfortable with who Jesus is or we expect Jesus to fit these boxes that Jesus wasn't really designed to fit. That's not who Jesus is. We want to make Jesus safe and he wasn't safe, but we also want to make Jesus this crazy radical person and at times he wasn't that. So I want to encourage you, spend some time the next week what was the purpose of Christ? Why did Christ come? What is he here to do? And how do we need to not change our, who we think Christ or what Christ needs to do, but how can we change our vision of him? I think so often we get so stuck in just one lane of this is who Jesus is exclusively, and we miss the areas that he's working in the larger picture. So I'll be here. If you want to be introduced to who Jesus is, I would love to explain who, he, who that is and what he has done. But if you want to spend some time here at the altar and just pray over your vision and view of who Christ is, um, I want to encourage you to have that opportunity to do that too. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for just who you are. I thank you for the way that you, you change me through your word. I just thank you for the way that your word works. I just pray that you would just be with these individuals as they make the decisions that they need to make. In Jesus' name, amen.